Well, just another word of welcome and good morning again to all of you. Again, we're glad you're here with us today as we continue this study of the book of Ruth. Uh, Before we begin the message today, I invite you to bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak this morning and the thoughts we think as together we meditate on your word for us, Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are studying together this book of Ruth, and, uh, and it's really a, a story, a story, like I said, with not a lot of overt theological content, but the reason we're studying this story is because the reality is, it's about Jesus. In fact, as we look at God's Word, everything from the very beginning in the Old Testament to the last thing in the book of Revelation, all of it together tells us the story of Jesus and His saving work on our behalf. You may have heard the story about the pastor that was doing a children's message one day, and he started by asking the kids, he said, he said, I want you to picture something for me. It's about this long, and it has a big bushy tail, and it hides nuts in holes in trees. What is it? And one of the little boys said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer is always Jesus here, so I'm going with Jesus, right? (laughs) Really, at the heart of it all, the story of the Bible is the story of Jesus. And so what we've been looking at each week as we study this story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and that place called Bethlehem many years ago, we look at what it has to do with the story of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ in our lives. Because really, the story of Ruth helps us understand the story of God. Now, there were a couple of words that Nick introduced you to last week, a couple of Old Testament Hebrew words, and we're watching for those themes to occur again and again in the stories of each of the characters in this book. The first is that word, and I love saying this word, chesed, okay? Everybody try that with me, chesed. All right, now everybody wipe off the person's head in front of you, right? But, uh, but no, it's, it's an amazing word in the Bible because it talks about this idea of love and mercy and grace and compassion and kindness, all kind of wrapped up into one word. And uh, that love and mercy and grace and kindness is unfailing, it is faithful, it is covenantal, it, it is, uh, nothing can ever deter that love. It's that, 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 that perfect love of God that we know we can never lose because it's not about who we are, it's about who he is. And the, and the second word is related to it, it's the one who brings us that unfailing love, that chesed in our lives. It's, it's a word that means to help or, or helper and And what we are seeing is how throughout all of our lives, God is the one who is our helper each and every day. Now, again, to set the scene for us, this is in the time of the judges of the Old Testament. So the children of Israel have been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They've left Egypt and now settled in the promised land, that event that we call the Exodus And that exodus out of slavery, out of Egypt, into that place that God had promised his people, Um, now they're in that land, we were were told that they had no king. Now, they really did have a king, as as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, but at least in their own eyes, they had no king. And so as a result, everyone did, and this translation says, as they saw fit. Literally, it says they did what was right in their own eyes. And didn't worry about what others or even God thought about their behavior. That's the scene here. Now, um, we looked at the character of God throughout this story last week. And now we're going to spend these next three weeks looking at the three other main characters in this story. 
uh, the character of Naomi, the character of Ruth, and the character of Boaz. We're going to be looking at each one of them. Now this week, we want to focus on Naomi, and her name means good, lovely, and pleasant. Maybe I should have picked a different picture. But, uh, but we are, we are going to study this story and see um, what, what happened in her life as her circumstances, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, went from bad to worse. Now, it, it starts right in the very beginning of the book, the first two verses. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, again, those days when there was no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of that man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. Now, there's an incredible amount of irony in those verses if you know Hebrew, if you know that old ancient language. Here's the first irony. It says that there was a famine in the land in a place named Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. An irony right there in a place that is supposed to be overflowing with milk and honey, that promised land, that house of bread, there is no bread. There's a famine. And we're told that one of the residents there, a a man by the name of Elimelech, and you know what Elimelech's name means? It means God is king. Remember I just said that in the eyes of the people there was no king in Israel. And yet, Elimelech's name means, well, God is king. His very name was a reminder of the fact that God had rescued his people out of slavery. He had brought them through the exodus to the promised land, and he had promised that he would be their king, that he would take care of them there. But now, Elimelech doubts that promise. And as a result, when things get tough there in Bethlehem, he decides to go to Moab. Now, Moab was a, a, a place where, because of the geography, famine was rare, but it was also a place where other gods were worshipped, even to the point of child sacrifice being common there in Moab. And Elimelech takes his family from the promised land and goes to that pagan place because he thought he knew what was best. He thought he needed to provide for his family. He needed to take care of his family He thought he didn't need to trust God. Now, we don't know what Naomi's role was in that. We're not told. Maybe Naomi was the one that kept saying to him, when are you going to do something, Boaz, or uh, Elimelech? When are you going to take care of this? When are you going to help us out? When are you going to take some action? You're supposed to be the man of the house. What's going on? You see a few guys in the room going, yeah, I I, I know what that's like, right? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it was the opposite. Maybe Naomi was the one going, Elimelech, what are you doing? We should just trust in God. We should just stick it out here. God's going to be faithful. God's going to keep his promise. We we don't know. So so either either Naomi was the cause of her own problems here, or, or maybe she had nothing to do with it. She was kind of just at the whim of her husband. But the problems begin. And so they go to Moab. And there in Moab, Elimelech dies. And, uh, and now Naomi is left with just her two sons to support her. You see, women in those days could not own property. Uh, they, they couldn't take care of themselves, uh, not legally. And so that's why having a husband or sons was really important. So even though her husband's died, at least she still has her sons. But the sons aren't perfect either. 
And, and we're told just a, a verse later that those sons decide to marry. And in fact, they don't decide to marry good Jewish girls. They decide to marry women from Moab. Now, later in the biblical account, we'll learn the problems with that. Solomon, you remember him, that great king of Israel, he marries foreign women. And what do they do? They lead him to worship their gods, their foreign gods. These sons of Naomi marry foreign women. It's a problem. And then, to make matters worse, we're told about 10 years later, both of her sons die too. And Naomi is literally left with nothing, no means of support, no grandchildren, no relatives, nothing, just these two Moabite women who are her daughters-in-law. That's it. Really, what we have seen is Naomi's life go from bad to worse. It started with the famine, and then her husband died, and then her sons marry foreign women, and then her sons die. Naomi's life is a disaster. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced it where, uh, you know, something goes wrong in your life and you're like, well, that's okay, we can get through this, and then the next thing that happens is worse, and the next thing is worse, and it just seems like you can't catch a break. Uh, Betty and I experienced that once. Uh, we called it our honeymoon. <laughs> Literally, we had the worst honeymoon anyone has ever had. Uh, let me just give you a, a brief Cliff Notes version. So we got married on December 30th, 1978. Did I get that date right? Yes, I did. Okay, yeah. <laughs> December 30th, 1978, we got married. Now, if that, that date sounds familiar to you at all, it's because it was one of the worst ice storms in the history of the city of Chicago. About half the people never made it to our wedding ceremony because the, the roads had iced up so bad. If they waited a little too long, they were stuck. They weren't going to make it there. Um, and then once we got to our reception, then the ice stopped and the snow started. And, uh, and by the time we left the reception, uh, a group of the ladies who were our bridesmaids, actually their car got hit by a snowplow, plowing the roads, okay? So, so that was bad. And then Betty and I made it to our hotel to spend our wedding night, but because O'Hare was closed, they had given away our room two hours ago. Yeah, from bad to worse, right? But it was okay the next day because we headed where we were going. We went to Toronto. <laughs> yeah, trust me, it just it didn't get any better. All right. Now, now I, I'm kind of joking around, but uh, but the point is, sometimes life does that to you, doesn't it? Sometimes it, it seems like you know you can't catch a break, and just no matter what happens, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And sometimes when that happens, really it's our own fault, right? Sometimes we think we can kind of dig ourselves out of a problem, and we dig ourselves right into a bigger problem. Sometimes we think we can make up for our own sinful actions, or, or maybe it wasn't our own sinful actions. It was, it was the sinful actions of someone else, and we take things into our own hands, and we think we can fix it, and we just create a bigger mess. But sometimes, sometimes it's really just not our fault. Sometimes we live in a sinful, broken world, and we live around sinful, broken people, and sometimes, literally, we haven't done a thing wrong, but life just stinks, and bad stuff happens, and it seems like we just can't catch a break, and it goes from bad to worse to worse. What do we do? Well, what did Naomi do? Naomi blamed God. Yeah. 
I mean, look at what it says. She finally decides the only hope she has at all is to go back to Bethlehem, back to the place where she grew up. And so she goes back to Bethlehem, and there when, when she sees people, and they say, oh, look, it's Naomi. And she goes, don't call me that. Don't, don't call me lovely. Don't call me good. Call me Mara. That, that means bitter. And, and, and by the way, it's not just that she had become kind of a bitter person. Look at what she says. Literally, you should call me bitter because that's how God has dealt with me. In, in the Bible, sometimes there's this symbol for God's judgment. It's, it's, a, it's a bitter drink to drink. And she says, that's what God's given me. He's given me this bitter thing to drink. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. I used to be Naomi. Now I'm Mara. Now I'm bitter. And look at what she says. The Lord has testified against me and the, and the Lord has brought this calamity upon me. She blamed God. Have you ever been tempted to do that? I know I have. Sometimes when things haven't gone the way I wanted or hoped in life, there's been this little voice in my head going, hey, why? Why, God? How could you let this happen? How could you do this to me? Are you punishing me for something? Is that what you're up to, God? Are, are you just uh, not paying attention? Or, you know, do you, do you have this different idea of what I can handle in my life than I have? Naomi blamed God, and, and I get it. If, I, if, if I'm honest, I felt that way too. But the first thing we need to know is God is never the author of anything evil or bad in our lives. God does not do evil. In fact, in the very beginning, when God created this universe, he didn't create a broken, sinful universe. He didn't make a mistake and make it imperfect. We're told at the end of Genesis that when God looked at everything he had created, he said, it's good. In fact, not just good, it's very good. There is no word for perfect in that ancient language of the Old Testament. This is as close as it gets. It was very good. God doesn't make anything evil. He created human beings and he gave us free will. And, and let's be clear, the reason bad things happen in our lives is because we or other human beings have made bad choices and, and this is a broken place as a result. But God makes us some amazing promises. The first one is that no matter what is happening in your life right now, no matter where you find yourself, if you feel like you're on that descent from bad to worse to worse, God says to you and to me, don't panic. I've got a plan. Don't panic. I've got a plan. I know the plans for you. I have for you, God says. They are plans to give you a future and a hope, not plans for evil. God never plans evil in our lives. We can't blame God. But he does plan to give us a future and a hope. That's his commitment to us. There's this great verse in Romans 8, 28. You've probably heard it a million times. That's because it's just such an incredible promise to cling to. God says that for those who love him, for those who have been given that gift of his love and grace and faith for you and for me, he promises all things work together for good. All things. 
Even the the bad choices that we make, God can bring good out of those difficult choices. Even the the sinful things that we do, God can bring good out of those sins in our life. Even the brokenness we may encounter through no fault of our own in the lives of others or just the fact that we live in a sinful world, God's promise is all things can work together for good. And then finally, God promises this. Right in the middle of that suffering and that struggle, you will find God. God promises he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That's his commitment. Now, if those promises are all true, then why did Naomi believe that God had abandoned her? Well, there's an important principle at work here in her life that I want to make sure that you and I understand it's crucial for us. And, and I want to tell you the story of another faithful believer, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. Now, if you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis, he's one of the greatest Christian authors ever. He, he has written some amazing books like Mere Christianity. Uh, see, C.S. Lewis was one of the most intelligent guys around. And at 15, he had said, you know what, I don't believe there's a God. Uh, all that stuff about God that I was taught when I was a kid, I don't believe any of it. I think that's all a lot of baloney. But, but God didn't give up on C.S. Lewis, and he kept working in his life, and he kept challenging C.S. Lewis. And and finally, C.S. Lewis said, okay, you know what? I believe there's a God, not because my parents told me to or because the Bible says so. I believe there's a God because the evidence is overwhelmingly pointing to the fact that there's a God. Now, another thing about C.S. Lewis that you need to know is he was pretty much a confirmed bachelor. Until later in his life, he met this amazing woman, And he decided to get married. And not long after they got married, they found out that she had bone cancer. And their marriage only lasted four years, and she died. Now, after her death, he kept a diary. And that diary's now been published as a book. It's called A Grief Observed. And I want to read you something he wrote very early in that diary, just in those first few days after the death of his wife. This is what he wrote. He said, meanwhile, where is God? When you're happy and you go to him, you will be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting in the inside. And then silence. Did you ever experience that? Things aren't going well in life, there there are problems, there are struggles, and you know those promises from God, and and so you turn to God in the midst of your struggle, when, when life feels the worst, and it seems like there's nothing, no answer from God. Literally, he says, like the door is bolted and there's silence. But later in that diary, As he started to process and work through his grief, this is what he wrote. He said, I've gradually come to feel that the door, that door between him and God, he said, is no longer shut and bolted. And then look at what he says. He says, was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time where there is nothing at all in your soul but a cry for help may be just the time when God cannot give it. Perhaps your own cries deafen you to the voice you'd hoped to hear. In other words, C.S. Lewis decided that in the moment of his grief, it wasn't that God wasn't there. It wasn't that God wasn't ready to help. It wasn't that God wasn't keeping his promises. 
C.S. Lewis said what, what was really going on is, is, is he was too, um, too racked by his own grief to be able to hear the voice of God, to be able to see God's presence in his life. He described it later in that diary like a drowning man who's crying out for help, but at the same time kicking and flailing his arms so much that no one could actually help him. And by the end, C.S. Lewis said, I know beyond a doubt that God kept those promises to me even if I didn't feel it, even if I didn't understand it. And we see that in this story of Ruth's life. Folks, as, as we study, the, I mean, in Naomi's life, as we study the story of Ruth next week and then Boaz the week after, the whole rest of this book, the whole rest of the story, we are going to see God keeping his promises to Naomi. We are going to see God being faithful, that God did not abandon her, that, that God was there with her every step of the way. We are going to see God's amazing, loving kindness and his help to a widow who desperately needed it. We're going to see that play out in these next couple of weeks. But one little aspect of that, I want to give you just a little preview today. And to do that, we have to talk just for a minute about Ruth. Now remember, she's from Moab. She, she doesn't she wasn't raised to know the true God. She doesn't owe Naomi a thing. In fact, Naomi looks at her and she says to her and her sister, her sister-in-law, you guys, you guys go back to your family. Go back to your household. You're still young enough. There's still hope for you. You can find another husband. You can have a happy life. Just leave me alone. Just go. And, and Ruth's sister does. She says, yeah, that's smart. That's a good thing. Thanks. And she does. But not Ruth. Ruth, Ruth looks at her and she says, no way. I, don't urge me to leave you. For wherever you go, I'm going to go. And wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. And your people are going to be my people. And your God is going to be my God. And when you die, there I'm going to be buried. And this woman from Moab, who was raised worshiping these other gods, says, may the Lord, the true God, may he do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth became that presence of God's chesed, God's loving kindness and faithfulness, of God keeping his promises in the life of Naomi. She was not alone. So here's my question for you. We all know people, right, that it just seems like nothing good ever happens to them. It just seems like they're always under that cloud. It seems like their life constantly is going from bad to worse to worse. And, and our tendency, our natural tendency is to kind of say, whoa, and distance ourselves from people like that, right? In fact, I, I was reading this book on stress this week, and, and the author says, here's one of the key things to do about to, to get rid of stress in your life. Figure out who those people are in your life, those people that never have a good thing to say, those people that all bad stuff's happening, and don't spend any more time with them. That's what this book said. I guess that's wise from a worldly perspective. That's not what God does, right? God never looks at you, me, you and me and goes, all right, I'm sick of the complaining, guys. I'm going to give you a time out for a little while, right? doesn't do that. God promises. He says, never will I leave you or forsake you. And, and folks, he encourages us to be his voice of chesed, his voice of, of loving kindness and hope and peace. He encouraged us to be helpers of those around us. So here's my challenge for you this, this Mother's Day. First of all, if you feel like your life just keeps going from bad to worse, know that God has not abandoned you. He is with you. He has plans for your future. He wants to give you hope. He can make good come out of any 
struggle in your life. And second of all, let me challenge you, who do you need to be that person for this week? Who needs that loving presence in their life? Who can you be Ruth for? Who can, is, who's that Naomi in your life that needs to know that someone loves and someone cares? I pray that God would bless you as you live in that love and grace this week. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about our relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.